The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. We're going to be discussing a hot topic today, race in America. So we who are private investigators deal with issues of race and culture every single day. We find racial conflicts in every corner, in every state, from small communities to the inner city. It's in our schools, the places we work, our neighborhoods, and the places where we shop. We even try to forget it exists sometimes, or we even try to delude ourselves that it doesn't exist. Sometimes it's very subtle and sometimes it's right in your face. But nevertheless, it is never so obvious in this country that when a white man shoots a black man. It is then, in my opinion, uh, when the true beliefs of people in this country are unleashed to just fuel the conversation. So Eric Eccles is my guest today and uh, to discuss this very hot topic. And I encourage you if you're listening today, to call in and share your thoughts. Eric is a returning guest. You might listen to his original show that aired January 20th, 2011, entitled No Justice in Catoosa County. So Eric is no stranger to to racism, as you would see in that show if you listen to that. But let me tell you about Eric. Uh, He's a former Marine. U.S. Marine. He's the founder, president, and CEO of the LPS Group, a privately owned loss prevention, private detective, and security corporation. He has over 25 years of experience in loss prevention, security investigations through the executive positions he held with Fortune 500 companies. He's a licensed private investigator, a firearms trainer for the state of Georgia through the Secretary of State, private detective, and security agencies. He's a certified forensic interviewer and has interviewed uh, interview and interrogation experience in retail, criminal, and civil investigations. He's also a board director with the Georgia Association of Professional Process Servers, an advisory board member with the American Intercontinental University Criminal Justice Program, and an active serving member of Destiny Metropolitan Worship Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Need I say that he's from Georgia? Probably not. Eric's authored The Fisherman and the Catch, Catching the Right Woman, and his recently released book, The Eric's Fo- the Eccles File, Catoosa County Justice, and I highly recommend reading that book. It'll knock your socks off. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. Oh, I love having you again. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
and we've had uh, a lot of conversations and uh, but this is a, a very troublesome topic well, uh, go ahead it is um, this is a very troublesome time <laughs> it is you're right because we were led to believe that racism was going to go away right right and it hasn't no it in hasn't. fact in fact, maybe it's been exacerbated. I would agree with that. Okay. And and, so, and here's and here's the whole thing. I mean, we can we can get right into it. We're obviously talking about the Zimmerman case. Exactly. And that case in itself showed America that racism still exists in some form and fashion. Mm-hmm. But before I dive into that and, and give you my opinion on it, I want to say openly, I, uh, I'm sorry for the loss of Trayvon uh, Martin. Uh, I hope this gets out to his family, because the real loss in this whole ordeal was them losing their son. Absolutely. And then after losing their son, having to go through a system that was set up for all people for all races to be fair and impartial, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So again, they were affected by another loss, which is justice. And Eric, and how do you think it went awry? Well, you, you got to look at the whole case itself. Um, you got to look at the players who were involved. You, you have a, a, a man who was overzealous in, in being a patrol on a, on a system that they had in the community watch. You had an Afri um, uh, African-American young male who dressed the way that young teens dress today. And based on that, going through a community that doesn't fit the profile of that community. And you had a man who, in his own mind, um, approached him, and an incident happened. And that incident uh, resulted in the death of Trayvon Martin. So <clears throat> when you talk about how did it go array, it went array from the very beginning with mm -hmm. Zimmerman and the mentality that he had as far as stereotyping young youth and based on their appearance and the way that they wear hoodies or wear their clothes. Mm -hmm. And then it escalated into a system that is deemed and known by all that it should be fair and impartial, which is justice, and you go through that system, and you have a six-jury pool. And in that six-jury pool, you have no one of color. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not the fact that they were all women. That's, that's not an issue. The issue is you had a person who was killed who was, was African-American, and you had a person who killed them was white. And even the, the system itself didn't even put African-Americans on the jury, which to me is just ridiculous. 
Well, and of course, we don't know um, who was who, what the jury pool that they pulled from was comprised of. We don't no, know. We don't. You know that that's that's always an issue, um, as you know and I know when we're, when there's trials, the court the court in question pulls in x number of people for a jury pool to draw from for the jury and at least in my area i my i'm in oakland california which is a a pretty high percentage of black population comparatively speaking to the rest of the country and even then we often don't get too many people of african-american heritage so so we don't know that no, I'm, we I'm don't. assuming. Yeah, I'm assuming there probably were, but we don't know that. Right, we don't know, but you can't tell me in the society of today and in the area he was in that there wasn't any qualified or any individuals right. of color who could have been on that jury pool. I agree. Okay, I agree. So, so when you look at that, you come out with a verdict that. Americans, most of the Americans today, you can hear it on the news, you hear it um, in the protests, you, you, people are talking about it, were upset because they all felt that it was unjust. Mm-hmm. So when you have injustice that continues, then it stimulates to the racial profiling and the conversations about race, which you and I talked about before, is a very touchy topic. Exactly. People just don't talk about it until it happens. And then when it happens, then everybody gets up in arms and gets array and gets upset. And and then you have riots that spurt here and there, and and you have all these issues that happen that come with it. Yes, it seems seems like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it seems like, what happens is there, there are these smoldering resentments that people are carrying that come out full force when something like this happens. So the dialogue then becomes a dialogue of anger and not a dialogue of objectivity. And, and that's a good comment, and, and that's true. But, but you have to understand is that when something so harsh happens to a certain group of people or a group of people feel that you know, they're sick and tired of this, these type of things happening, then, of course, when it happens in full force, then more people are going to come out and force their opinion about it. But, but what we always seem to forget is that it needs to change. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's the fact that remains is how do we make it change? How do we inflict that change on society where these things will not happen in the future? Exactly. And, and so, what would you say to that? Well, and, and I've given it some thought. <laughs> so, I'm you sure know, you have. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's funny, Francie, because we are the only country that refer to people uh-huh. and put them in a race based, or put them in a group based on their race and nationality. Yeah. On every application that anybody who's listening to this this, uh, this conversation, you you fill out an application that says, "Are you Latino?" And if you're not Latino, do you fall in African American? If you're not African American, are you Asian American? Are you? Oh, 
how can we just can't be Americans? Right. You, you, no, you, you made you a, at, yeah. <laughs> you made a good point. You don't hear Australian Americans or you right. don't hear uh, Australian Africans, right. <laughs> for example. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Okay, so that's the start. I mean, I'm an American. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Marine Corps and I was when we would go out to the field and do training, Francine, and, and I had to dig a foxhole with another Marine, I didn't care if that Marine was white, blue, pink, gray. Yeah. That person, all I saw was green, cami green, mm-hmm. and he was a United States Marine. That's all that mattered to me. Mm-hmm. And, and here in our society, it should be the same. We're American citizens. Yeah. That's it, bottom line. But, but we through history, have always put ourselves in different groups and categories. And that's, that's the first thing that should change. The second thing to change is how did this happen as far as the verdict with, with Zimmerman. And I spent some time looking up and reading the, the instructions mm-hmm. that was given by the judge to the jury. And when I looked through it, there was no way that, that a, a person of, and I don't say they didn't have common sense, <laughs> but a person <laughs> couldn't read these instructions and say, you know what, maybe it wasn't second-degree murder. But on the other side, it sure was manslaughter. That's the thing that bothers me too, Eric, because I mean... It looked like from the beginning to me, I mean, obviously I'm not an attorney. Let's put that qualification out there. But that there was a taking of a human life. And that, and that no matter kind of how you cut it, unless it was self-defense, which he tried to claim, right. um, is my, manslaughter. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm going to read the two points that it has on the instructions for manslaughter. Can- can you hang on to that while we take a short break so we can I come sure back can. and cover it fully? Okay, we'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you're listening to pi's declassified with francie kaler you can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. What do you think about the killing of Trayvon Martin? We would love to have your comments if you want to call in. My guest, private investigator and author, Eric Nichols. Eric, I keep saying Nichols. It's Eccles. Eric <laughs> Eccles and I are back. Um, Eric was just about to give us uh, a couple of the jury instructions from the Trayvon Martin case. Go ahead, Eric. Okay. And, and what I was going to talk about earlier was the manslaughter. Because, again, this is a 27-page document, which I'm not going to read 27 pages. Right. But it's, okay, so let's put it in perspective. So the jury gets a document of jury instructions that are 27 pages. Yes. And, and I'm assuming, like most courts, the judge would read those 27 pages before they sent the jury out for deliberation. Yes. Okay. And, and, and in that, just so everybody have a full scope of the document, it, it is online. You can just Google it. But it, it talks about homicide, justifiable homicide, excusable homicide, second-degree murder, manslaughter, justifiable use of deadly force. It goes on and on about different things. And within that body of the, of the document, there's also directions and, and def, definitions of certain key words. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So when you look at manslaughter, there are only two things the state must prove, two elements beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. The first one was Trayvon Martin is dead. Okay, well, that's, that's accomplished. Right. The second one was George Zimmerman intentionally committed an act or acts that caused the death of Trayvon Martin. That's the second one. So okay. those two alone, <laughs> right there, were satisfied. Right. But then it goes on, and... When it gets to justifiable homicide or the use of, of justifiable deadly force is what it's called, it states that if George Zimmerman was not engaged in an unlawful activity and was attacked in any place where he had a right to be, he had no duty to retreat and he had the right to stand his ground and meet force with force including deadly force, if he reasonably believed that it was necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself or another or to prevent the commission of a forcible felony. Okay. Okay. So when you read that, now you look at was, did he have a right to be where he was at the time, the incident with Trayvon? And that was the big ordeal that came to play in the trial, because did he was George, specifically did told. Zimmerman, what's you're, that? Saying, you're saying, did, did George Zimmerman have did the right George to be Did George Zimmerman there? have okay. a right? Got it. But but now it comes into play 
on the 911 call. When the person on 911 operator told him not to pursue it, did he then have a right to be there? Mm-hmm. And that's the million-dollar question. Right. And then it goes on to, if he did have that right, then he had a right to stand his ground and meet force with force. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue with the whole Zimmerman case, in my opinion. Because okay. as you read the instructions, so that tells me that those six ladies, those six individuals, said that he had a right to be there after being told not to. Because otherwise, if they deemed that he did not have a right to be there, then he did not have a right to stand his ground. Mm-hmm. And Trayvon Martin would be alive today. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but he, but go ahead. Back, so let's back, let's back up a second. So when the jury deliberates with these jury instructions and, and uses these, and, and they're more than guidelines, they're rules right. that they have to follow. I mean, they're, they're hard, fast. They have to follow these rules in order to come to their conclusion. Um, what do you, where do you think it fell down from the presentation by the pro- prosecutor improving their burden of proof? Well, I mean, I, and, and I can only give you what I've, I've seen in the news or right. give you what I heard because what everybody needs to understand, there's so much that we don't get on the outside of that courtroom. Mm-hmm. There's, there's documents after documents that get excluded. There's evidence that get excluded. There's um, right. discovery that probably wasn't presented. That was an issue. I mean, there's so much stuff that we don't get. And it's, it's kind of hard to say and pinpoint not being an attorney myself. Mm-hmm. But from what I gather... And from what I was able to see, the breakdown on the prosecution side was the fact that they weren't, I hate to say this, but they weren't skilled enough to outwit Zimmerman's attorney. Hmm. Because as you know, you've been in the courtroom. Yep. I've been in the courtroom. It's like a chess match in there between the attorneys. It certainly is. Okay, who who can manipulate and who can twist the law to fit their their defendant or the person they're representing? Mm-hmm. And looking at it, Zimmerman's attorney did a better job. Because had I been an attorney been in there, I would have harped on the fact that he did not have a right to stand his ground. And he ha- and 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 not having that right, he should have retreated. Right. But again, you go back to the instructions of manslaughter. Even with that, I, I, I just can't understand why he didn't get manslaughter. Uh, I, I just can't. Well, I, you know, as we we talked the other day, I uh, last Sunday there was a radio program on KGO Radio in San Francisco. Um, the talk show host is Brian Copeland, uh, who's a fairly well-known talk show host. He's actually a stand-up comic, comic as well, but he has some very serious shows on Sunday. And with him was an attorney, a local attorney, who handles um, civil rights cases in California by the name of John Burris. And they were discussing this issue. And 
John Burris brought up a really interesting point that I thought that the these jurors, um, and we we know that five of them are white, and one of them is I think Hispanic. Non-white. Let's say non-white. Non-white. Okay. Non-Caucasian. I don't because it it seems to there seems to be mixed comments on the heritage of this person. So let's say non-white um, that they were not prepared to hear testimony from somebody who didn't speak what I call Anglo-Caucasian English. Okay. Okay, and that affected them. Um. Or, or maybe even discredited that person's testimony. Well, and, and here's the thing. And we're talking, what's the lady's name, Jenna? Yes, Jenna. Okay. That's the, the, the friend of Trayvon. Tra- friend of Trayvon. Yeah. See, what, what, what everyone needs to understand about this lady, and, and let me be the first to say, I think that Jenna is a courageous young lady. Yes. I think that Jenna is a person who um, is, is full of pride within herself. And I think that even though, and I, I mean, we're talking candid and being honest, mm-hmm. even though she was not a good witness, you have to take in consideration where this young lady came from. Right. And from what I've understood, she pretty much taught herself English. Yes, she, so English was her actually her third language, wasn't it? Her third language. Yeah. So she came from Haiti. Right, and she's from, from a different country. Right. So when you have a person like that who's a young adult, then how is she learning and how is she, she identifying herself in a society to go before or be involved in one of the most national cases in today's time to be able to sit there and testify. Well, I'm going to tell you, she's looking at TV. Mm -hmm. She said 48 hours or 48, you know, whatever was her show. So she's looking at all of these crime shows and she's looking at TV and MTV and all these different things that probably corrupt young people's minds to get up there and testify. Yeah. Well, and, and, and no one took that in consideration. What they did was they took her testimony, and because you had the jury makeup that you did, who couldn't understand the type of person she was and where she was coming from, they dismayed or discredited her testimony. Well, and I question her name is actually Rachel Jean Tell, right. 19 years old. So she's just, just barely an adult, really. You know, and thrown into a national limelight that is highly charged. So, um, but it, I question, and and I wasn't there. I have I wasn't involved in the case. So all that disclaimer. But I question that watching her testimony and hearing her testimony, if she was prepared to testify, because you and I both know. Testifying on a witness stand is a very difficult thing to do. Yes, it is. No matter, I mean, even if you're just uh, a worker bee working for one of the attorneys, it's you're under attack. The other side, whoever side you're working for, the other side is going to attack you. They're going to try to undermine you. They're going to try to push your hot buttons. And if you're not prepared for that, and even if you are prepared, it, it still happens. It breaks you. 
Exactly. But if you're so, not prepared for that. So, so let's lose in that same analogy and the same comment you made. I mean, here's a person who already had things going against her. So, again, we go back to the prosecution. I mean, to yeah, to the prosecution. Did they prep her? Did they screen her? Did they talk to her enough to make her understand the importance of her testimony on how to behave and how to, to dress and how to look and how to dress and say yes and sir and look at the jury when you answer your questions? I mean, these are things that we know because we either teach it or we've been through it. Right. But she didn't do any of those things. So now you say, okay, was she prepped or was she prepped enough? Yeah. yeah and and that, that, again, falls on the prosecution. It does. It really does. Because she probably was the key witness. Yes. Rachel she didn't was, tell us her name. Uh, yes. She's yeah, on the phone with him. My wife just texted me, so I, I know we've got one person listening. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Kudos for your wife. I know, um, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she was the key witness. She was on the phone with Trayvon. She heard this happening. I mean, I can't imagine hearing it, knowing that he got killed at the time you were on the phone with him, how that must affect your life. Oh, yeah. W- without a doubt. But, but, he- but here's the other thing. Part of the instruction that was given to the jury... Yeah. When weighing the evidence, was six different questions that they had. One okay, of them hang, was. Hang on, hang oh, on to ahead. that question because we need to take another break. They just let me know. Oh, we'll okay. be right back. Thanks, Eric. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112. To find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back with Eric Eccles, and I cut him off mid-sentence. Go ahead with what you were saying, Eric. Okay, r- real quick, because I know we're on the time thing. Okay, they, the juror was given instructions on weighing the evidence. And based on that, they had six questions in, in, that they should consider how the witness acted as to what they said, and some things that should be considered are. That's how it's worded. Well, number three on this list says, was the witness honest and straightforward in answering the attorney's questions? And then there's some other questions. And then number six states, did the witness at some other time make a statement that was inconsistent with the testimony he or she gave in court? So if if you're a witness, if you're a juror, and you're giving these instructions, Mm -hmm. then immediately you're going to discredit what Miss Rachel said. Mm-hmm. You're going to immediately discredit it because at one point, I think they said she didn't tell the truth about her age. Right. Was one of the things which in the deposition she said she was one age and then in court she said she was another age. But then yeah. she explained why she said that. But right. then again, if your instruction is did the witness at some other time make a statement inconsistent, then automatically you discredit her. Mm-hmm. and not look at why she did what she did. And based on your comment, she was the last one who was talking to Trayvon. Right, exactly. Her, wit- her testimony should have been the one that they listened to the most. Exactly. Exactly. So. It is, uh, you know, regardless, regardless of the outcome of this case, the, ca- it, the case is a travesty. You know, the Trayvon's parents lost their son. Right. He was he was doing nothing wrong. He was walking down the street after buying some Skittles and something to drink. And what and what I hear over and over is that particularly in white neighborhoods where black kids are walking through forget my neighborhood, for example black kids are walking through to go to high school that parents are concerned about their kids their teenagers walking anywhere doing nothing wrong and getting hurt in some way right. or another or attacked and i and i think you know i i think that's a fear eric that that white people do not understand white folks don't have to deal with every time they walk out of their house, they take their lives in their hands. I think right. that's, you know, every time you see a cop, you think you're going to be pulled over for something, even though you're not doing anything wrong. Right. You know, there's, you know, lots of police officers ha- have a, a rule. If they see, you know, three or four young black men in a car, they pull it over regardless. Right. True or not true? These are true comments, true statements. So so we have such a cultural divide because the 
the Caucasian part of the world and this nation doesn't have the same experiences that the African American population has right. on a daily basis. Being watched when you go into a store because they think you're going to shoplift. Right. You know, be, it's just, it goes on and on and on. Not being treated equally at a, a counter when you go up to get something at the bank or the wherever. Right. Well, so, and, and here's the thing. I, I, I wish we had more time because this this, this type of, uh, going into this type of segment, it, it, it's going to take more than 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, and it's strange because I have white friends, uh-huh. um, and those white friends have black friends. Right. But there's always going to be that line that we do things differently. Comedians joke about it. People talk about it. There's always going to be that line where... Whites and blacks do things differently. We raise our kids differently. We go. We we do this certain things differently, and we have to get to a point. And this is the this is the million dollar question. Somebody can answer this, and the world would be a better place. We 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 have to get to a point where we eliminate that line. Yeah. And the only way that I know how to do it is treat everybody equal, and don't put race into it. Well, and there's got to be a dialogue, you know. It has to be. There has to. I mean, we know we don't we don't talk about this unless there's a problem, and then right. it's and then then it, and then people are are speaking from a position of anger. Right. I mean, we have to get acquainted. We have to work things out where there's an ongoing dialogue, and we'll find out we're not so very different. We, we, you know what, Francie? We're not. If if you, know? you close your eyes and I close my eyes, what color do you see? That's exactly right. Black. Okay. If you get cut, you, everybody sees black, right? Okay. If if you, if you cut yourself and I cut myself, what color is that blood going to be? That's right. It's exactly right. It's, it's going to be the same color. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, that's, I, and that's what people need to to understand. So I want to read uh, an email that I got regarding this show this morning, and I I think. Uh, it's instructive. Okay. So it's talking about Trayvon's case, and it says, you might go over the fact with him, meaning you, Eric, that is interesting that only when it is a non-black involved with a black that it receives the hype that the Zimmerman matter has. Where is the concern regarding the thousands of black-on-black killings or assaults which occur every year? I'd love to hear his take on this aspect, which reveals the outrage regarding this Zimmerman case disingenuous okay let, let, let me okay. let me address that okay and i hope this caller or this person is listening i loathe black on black crime mm-hmm. i loathe it because we're killing our own people okay i think that the reason this got much hype is because it was a, a white man killing a young african-american male who didn't have a weapon. But let me right. tell you something, emailer. You would have the same hype if it was a black man killing a young white man who didn't have any um, who didn't have a weapon. And the only difference would have been that it probably wouldn't have been a not guilty verdict. Right. I agree. I totally agree with you. 
Okay? So so you're right. There's a lot of black-on-black crime. It happens every day. And this is one of the things Francine just mentioned. You, you have to get to know the other races outside your own barrier because in those black communities, I mean, I've been in there. I work in those communities. I deal with those with with the individuals in those communities on different cases that I investigate. And it's it's I have to it's it's heartbreaking when I go into those communities and see the behavior and see you know our individuals, our people killing each other. So I'm I'm with you, but the problem is it happens so much. In all in, in in different states and different communities throughout the world, it's it's not big news. Right. Well, and and there's a and there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference, and the the black on black crime happens because of of something. And it's it's not just somebody's walking down the street and another person decides to kill them. It doesn't happen that way. It's it's fueled by a dispute. Right. I mean, I. I can tell you that I've been involved in hundreds and hundreds of cases of black-on-black crime where I've worked for the attorney. Right. And it's, there's always an incident. It's a disrespect. It's a, um, you know, maybe they were selling drugs and there was a dis- did something happened there, some kind of a dispute. Right. There, maybe, there was something that sparked it. But, but my take is it's always... Almost always, I just should never say always, right? That it's almost always a result of some one person disrespecting another, right? Because in the black community, particularly, I think way more than the white community, respect is critical. Yes, it is, and and I'm gonna tell you why it is that way, because in some of those communities, and some of those individuals. That's all they have is the respect, mm-hmm. and they'll do anything to keep it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it, different. And there's lots of ways that respect happens. It may it may happen because you're a, a, a elder in your church. It also right. may happen because you're you have the drug trade. I mean, it could be those two polar opposites, but right. it's still respect. So, so again, I, I hope I hope that answered his question. But, but again, I, 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 I'm, I, I loathe black on black crime. Well, but again, let's put it in perspective. Right. And had, had, had the, the the races been turned, if Zimmerman was black and Trayvon was white, mm-hmm. it would have made national news. But I guarantee you, Florida would be discussing the death penalty. Well, I'm not even sure it would have made national news, frankly. That's what bothers me. I don't think it would have. Well, depending on the situation, Francis, you may be right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you think about the number of murders that happen in this country every day, how many of you do actually hit the news? I just right. don't think we would have heard about it. Yeah, you could be right. I'm, sadly. And, and it sadly. is sad. And, see, and, 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 and I know we've about run out of time, but, but let me say this. African-American black people, in my opinion, only want one thing, and one thing only, and that's to be treated fairly across the board. When it comes to work, when it comes to promotions, when it comes to justice, whatever it comes to, whatever it is, fair treatment. We're not asking for anything more. We're not asking for anything less. We just want fair treatment. That's it. Totally. You know, uh, we haven't even, like you and I talked on the break, we haven't even mentioned the Oscar Grant case out of uh, 
Oakland, and we're going to have to take a break right now. I'll come back to that. We'll be right back after this commercial break. (laughs) News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back with Eric Eccles, Georgia private investigator Eric Eccles, and we've been talking about race in America, a very hot topic, mainly about the Trayvon Martin case. But I, what I just brought up was the um, Oscar Grant case in Oakland, California, where Oscar Grant in 2009, um, I believe it was New Year's Day 2009, yeah. was shot by a BART Bay Area Transit uh, train uh, police officer whose name was Miserly. Um, and the presentation, or what Meserle said, was that he pulled his taser instead of his gun and pulled the trigger, and, of course, it, Oscar was shot. Now, what happened was, this was at the, what they call the Fruit, Fruitvale Fruit Station. Fruitvale Fruit Station. No, Fruitvale Bart Station. Now, there is a movie that just was launched about three weeks ago called Fruitvale Station. So, if you're interested in... Um, and looking into this, it's from what I understand, it's a Sundance Prize winning film. Right. And they've done a very good job. I have not seen it, but I've heard really good comments about it, that they've done a great job presenting this case. But at any rate, Oscar Grant, granted, he had caused a little bit of this disruption on the BART state on the BART train, and they were off on the platform. And Regardless of what happened, Oscar was t- taken down by the police officers. He was on his face. He had his hands um, secure tied behind his back, t- tied together, secure tied behind his back. When, uh, and 
as you said on the break, I think one, one officer yeah. had his uh, one knee officer down. One officer had him controlled in the front with his knee in his neck. Mm-hmm. And then another officer was on his back, and, which right. was an officer, the person who pulled the gun. Right. And Officer Meserle pulled, pulled a taser, thought he was pulling a taser, and, and, and instead pulled, pulled the gun and pulled the trigger and shot Oscar Grant. And now here's a situation where, okay, maybe they had the right to take Oscar into custody. I'm not questioning that. I don't, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know what went on specifically right before this happened. But I do feel strongly that had Oscar Grant been a Caucasian young man, that that never would have happened. He wouldn't have been shot. And in fact, I don't believe that Officer Meserle would have even pulled the taser because they had two, they had an officer and himself that had Oscar under control. That is the issue. Yes. That is always the issue with the police versus the suspect is with you, whether you have them in control or not. Containment and control. He was on his face, on the platform, with his hands secured. You know, I, you know, I, I watched the video. Um, I, I remembered the case when it happened, and I went back and I did some research on it. And, Francie, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's an all-too-common thing where a white police officer shoots an, an African-American or a, a black male. And I don't know why police officers uh, feel that they have, or white police officers feel that they have to be so, I don't know, overzealous when it comes to detaining African-Americans. Yeah. And it clearly shows in this video that Oscar Grant was detained. He was under restraints. He had two police officers on him. There were a couple of more who were around him. The other individuals were all sitting down. One had already been cuffed. Mm-hmm. And this individual pulls his, his weapon and shoots him in the back. Mm-hmm. Now, like you said, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how this officer... Uh, you know, got to his weapon. But this is what I do know. And because I carry a weapon. Mm-hmm. You carry your weapon on your strong hand, mm-hmm. which is the hand that you, you know, your right or your left, depending on what you're right with. Right. You're trained to know how to pull your weapon in, a, in the event of an emergency situation. Exactly. If he was in a gunfight, he wouldn't have mistakenly pulled his taser. Good point. Okay. Okay. So good point. The the other thing is, is that most police officers I know, they carry their taser opposite the hip that they carry their weapon, Mm -hmm. because there's not enough room on the gun belt. Right. So for him to say he mistakenly pulled his his firearm, and that's what he thought he was pulling. Well, you got to take in consideration the size, the weight, and all of those things of a firearm compared to a taser. And I'm not buying it. I don't know why he pulled it, why he felt he needed to shoot him, but he was wrong. And that there, even though he was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, mm-hmm. um, he was supposed to serve two years in jail. He got out early. He got out for 11 oh. months. 
Exactly. That was another injustice. Yeah. That clearly was murder. That was homicide. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality is, why even, I mean, okay, say, let's, let's accept Meserle's claim that he pulled the taser by mistake. Why did he need to pull the taser? That's to another question. Why? Yeah, see, that, that, goes, that goes again. With, when, when, and see, when, when, when you talk about why African Americans don't like the police, mm-hmm. I mean, people say it all the time. You can go in a black community, hey, you don't talk sure. to police. No, I'm not talking to police. I don't yeah. trust the police. Right. It's, it's situations like this. It's situations and, like the Oscar Grant. And frankly, the private investigators get pulled into that same thing because often the community looks at us all the same. Oh, yeah. Even though we're working maybe on the other side. And, and, and I've had it happen. I mean, I have people saying, I'm not talking to you. You like the police. And then yeah. you have to, I mean, being an interviewer, you have to get them to believe that, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not the police. I'm investigating a whole different aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but again, you, you go back to the same stereotypes that, you know, most white police officers have against African-American males. Well, and let me just say, for those, because I know that the Oscar Grant case hasn't had the national and international news feed that the Trayvon Martin case has. If you're interested in looking at the Oscar Grant case that we're talking about, all the film is on YouTube. Yes, it is. If you can just put Oscar Grant in the YouTube search window, you will pull up all kinds of uh, information on Oscar Grant or, or see the movie. Because, I, again, I understand the movie is a, a pretty good, uh, true representation of what happened. Right. And, and again, friend, this happens all over. It happens all over. I it mean, happens and, and every I know firsthand day. <laughs> dealing with those sheriffs in Catoosa County. <laughs> yes, you had your own experience, didn't you? Uh, and remind people to go back and listen to uh, No Justice in Catoosa County from the January 20th, 2011 yes. show. And please, please urge them, everybody, get the book. Yes, yes, get the book. Get the book. Catoosa County Justice. You can go to Amazon.com and you can order it and you can get it or you can download it on your your tablets. It's good to go. Yeah. No, you had had an amazing experience there. You know, I guess we don't, none of us realize, any of us, um, whether we're white, black, brown, green, purple, yellow, we don't realize what the justice system is like unless we've been charged with a crime. Yep, until it happens to you. Until it happens to you, and then it is a whole different ballgame. But I tell you, when it happens to individuals, and, I, and I'll say this in closing, there are a lot of individuals in Catoosa County that are white who have called me to help them out of situations, and I'm doing it. And I'm helping them and work with them because, to me, Again, all I see is an American. I don't look at white or black. Yeah. And that's, well, and that's <laughs> going to be the change. Actually, after your experience, that must feel like vindication. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially to go back down there and these sheriffs look at me like, oh, he's back. And I'm like, yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> okay. Eric, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And let me, just, uh, let me just say that upcoming shows, Susan Nash, the author of Skip Tracing Basics and Beyond, a complete step-by-step guide for locating his, hidden assets. Logan Clark, a private investigator, has just recovered two abducted boys in Mexico. Daniel Shoemaker of Contrast Design on the state-of-the-art devices for demonstrative evidence. Mindy Nommer, 
from PI Now on Marketing for PIs and Joan Morris of Contra Costa Times on the Dottie Kaler case, which was one that I was heavily involved in. And then Michael Shane of CBS News. Um, so thank you, Eric, again. Uh, tune in next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks thank for you, listening. Francie. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.